if the asteroid, not even missed, but if it had hit in a different place, if it had hit at a different speed or angle or any number of things have been slightly different, the extinction might have either been canceled or dramatically altered and dinosaurs would still be running around. It wasn't inevitable. I'm Michael Tamler, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is science writer Riley Black, author of several bestsellers on paleontology, including My Beloved Brontosaurus, Written in Stone, and Skeleton Keys. And if you've read literally anything anywhere about dinosaurs in the last decade, you've probably happened upon pieces by her in National Geographic, Wired, Smithsonian Magazine, Scientific American, the all-star lineup of science writing. Her new book is The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, An Asteroid, Extinction, and the Beginning of Our World. It is a richly narrated story that starts with the end of the world. Riley Black, fellow mammal survivor, welcome to Kobo. I like that intro. Thank you so much for having me on. (laughs) The Last Days of the Dinosaur is a highly kinetic book. It is a series of snapshots about the hours, days, and eventually the years and centuries following the impact of an asteroid that wiped out almost everything and opened a path for mammals to scurry up the ecological niches we now occupy. How do you pick the moments to drop the reader into in that chronology to look around a bit in our fossil record? Oh, I love that you use that phrase, look around, because I thought about this in a very cinematic kind of way where mm-hmm. I thought about like movies that I love and where's the director kind of guiding your your view and it might be on part of a particular vista it might be something very broad and kind of thinking about like where do I want to call attention to these things and you know even 10 years ago a book like this probably wouldn't have been possible there were certain things that we knew about the impact that we could model from it saying you know about 66 million years ago this impact occurred about a hundred thousand years later you have a whole bunch of ferns a million years later you know mammals are starting to do quite well but a lot of that more granular be what happened in the second the hour the day the week the month those are things that we've only really uncovered in the past maybe five years or so some things even this year and last year that are entirely new to us so I felt like as I was thinking about how do I want to approach the story how do you approach the story of one of the worst days on the planet you know the world's fifth mass extinction and I had some of those benchmarks of where okay we have the moment of impact we have a million years later we have one or two things in between but some of these new finds have like okay like I can really say something tangible about what was happening that this isn't entirely just speculation, but I can actually draw from the false record, draw from the science and try and put people there and take that different kind of approach. We have plenty of books about this extinction and how we can understand it, but the story of how it transpired and how life recovered, that hadn't been done. So all those pieces really came together and inspired me to write this book. And I want to come back to some of those discoveries mm-hmm. a little bit later, because I'm I'm really interested in in what seems to be a period of very rich discovery that's going on in in paleontology right now but but i want to start right at the beginning as the as the curtain opens we start with a tyrannosaurus rex the the biggest the baddest dinosaur that most of us know why have them behind the opening curtain i knew i had to do something to grab readers and really what better iconic animal 
to talk about but Tyrannosaurus Rex because Tyrannosaurus Rex isn't just an emblem for dinosaurs in general it's really the emblem for the last days of the dinosaurs for that final moment and I very specifically wanted to make our leading Tyrannosaur like not fully grown I wanted to make sure that she had some parasites I even you know using that pronoun make it a female Tyrannosaur I feel like so often we're used to seeing sort of the largest, the heaviest, the most ferocious, the sort of very almost like masculine T-Rex. He's in like the prime of life. And I wanted to do something a little bit subversive, but something familiar. And I felt like that was a good introduction. It's kind of like seeing a friend. It's like seeing somebody that you know. Um, you know, I, I don't want to compare it to this movie too much because it's really only a super superficial resemblance. But I thought about it in terms of like Psycho and how the movie starts is very different from where it goes. And the cast of characters that you meet at the beginning is very different from the cast of characters that leads you through. So I felt like I needed to give the audience something to really ground themselves in space and time. And there was no better dinosaur to do that. I could have talked about any number of creatures. Yeah, I could have talked about little mm. crustaceans or mammals or birds or other things like that, but it just doesn't have the same weight to it. So it just, it really had to be T-Rex. We get a different character with each chapter the Tyrannosaurus at the beginning, a big Montosaurus in the second chapter, and Kylosaurus in the chapter during the impact and its immediate aftermath. And then things get very small. <laughs> Can yes. you introduce us to a couple of the survivors that we meet in the months and years after impact? Yeah. The story really downsizes it it has to in a sense the effects of the impact itself you know the immediate effects within the first day the most primary factor in all this was that air temperatures rose to over 500 degrees fahrenheit they see all the impact debris coming back down to earth and there's nothing that can really survive that out on the surface that you had to be small you had to be small enough to get into a burrow or live underwater somehow and most of the creatures that populate the rest of the book, you know, the largest of them. Um, I think there's a crocodile in one little vignette at some point that's, you know, around 20 mm -hmm. feet long or so. But most of them are about the size of a pigeon to about the size of a German shepherd. And these are the survivors and their descendants moving through this. So they include things like tiny snakes, like itty bitty little snakes that would have been able to occupy burrows. That's much like today, even if those snakes aren't creating their own underground burrows, they probably use burrows created by other creatures or even things like ferns and some of the plant life. It's very difficult to sort of write from the perspective of a fern, but I wanted to zoom in and talk about, you know, how they're responding to the environment, what's changing. Mm -hmm. For them and how they are kind of this bellwether of life starting to recover and at the end of each chapter i try and zoom out to some other place um on the planet you know most of the story takes place in what's now the hell creek formation of montana and the dakotas but this is a global event and i really wanted to keep that scale it's difficult knowing most of our information is from this one small pocket of the planet but it's a global event so one of my favorites was writing about this early little rodent this little thing that resembles what today's like a mountain beaver so this tailless pudgy little roly-poly rodent that likely was very much like the first rodents somewhere in ancient Asia, this big turnover that's going on where the some even some of the mammals that existed aren't doing so well. And there are new forms of mammals are starting to evolve, including the ancestors of today's mice and rats and things like that. So things get really itty bitty, but I felt like they all had an important role to play in this, like that they're all there for a reason as a kind of indicator of a big change happening. Well, and that, and that scale gives a sense of, of just how small a target you had to be to make it through 
this uh, this momentous event. And one of the things that that I love about the structure of the book is that it doesn't sit anywhere for very long, and it, and even accelerates almost logarithmically uh, through time after the asteroid impact. I, with more time and pages, would you have given us more stopping points along the way, or or were those jumps kind of carefully considered? either because of science or because of just the amount of time that it was taking for evolution to happen? Yeah, that's a great question in that I wanted to pick a kind of friendly time jump, kind of things that were more or less in the power of 10, because that's relatively familiar. I knew if I started throwing in sort of like, well, this particular formation is dated to, you know, 66.07 million years, and this one's 65.82, like it starts to get, you know, hard, hard to track. Um, but I didn't stay in any particular place too long because I felt like I wanted to keep things moving. I wanted to keep the story kinetic and follow through with some of these major categories. And I had originally thought about doing a little bit more. I thought about doing a kind of prologue that took place 75 million years ago, so about 9 million years before the impact. But then I thought, well, that's really cool, but it plays too much into this idea of whether dinosaurs were undergoing a decline or not. It didn't really help the story. I feel mm -hmm. like there's certainly more to say, but this is like the narrative choice that writers often have to make. Like, do I try and put everything in and like sort of hold, I don't want to say accuracy, but sort of completeness up as the goal, or is this a particular story that's being told and some things are just going to be left out of it just to kind of keep things moving along. So there's certainly lots of organisms I would have loved to have talked about or different environments around the planet I would love to include. But this is yeah, sort of the, um, the blockbuster version <laughs> of the story. <laughs> As I said, we get dropped each chapter into the perspective of the lucky or the unlucky reptile or mammal or amphibian through which we're going to experience each new phase of the of the post-extinction world was it was it easy to choose you know who would be the stand-in for for each period of time or for you know, each jump in the fossil record at some points it was incredibly obvious so like the the last chapter before the conclusion basically a million years after impact that chapter is directly based on a fossil deposit in Colorado called Corral Bluffs that we've really only come to know in the past couple of years. And it has fossils from about 100,000 years after impact and also a million years after impact. And these are things like big turtles and caimans and mammals of all different sizes and shapes. And I really drew from some of those. There's a mammal called Eoconodon. That's one of the stars of the last chapter. And that's directly from those fossil deposits. And I just, I liked them from the beginning. They're just this really neat kind of, they belong to a kind of group of mammals called Masonicids. So carnivorous mammals, but had hooves instead of claws at the end of their feet. And I just was so charmed with them. It's like, okay, they have to be in this story. But there were some others that's like, I didn't know who I was going to pick for a particular time period. And I researched it and it kind of emerged from different things I was reading. Like I knew I wanted to address acid rain and how that affected the fossil record, how it might've wiped out a lot of the fossil record that we might've otherwise found from the post-impact world. And that came from a paper about these little things called ostracods, these little crustaceans. You can still find them in habitats all over the world today. And I didn't expect to include them in the book at all because who's ever heard of an ostracod to start with? And yet they were such an important indicator for the story that I knew I had to bring them into it. So there were some that's like, I knew absolutely like this organism has to be in the book, but other things just came out of the research, things I didn't expect, things I learned in the process of, of writing this. And that one that you just touched on was 
the head slapping moment for me in the in the first two, two chapters because I had always had this question if practically all of the dinosaurs died at once you know, why don't we have a layer of the fossil record that is absolutely full of dead dinosaurs and plants and everything else shouldn't we have a massive graveyard at the boundary that is marked by the the asteroid impact and everything that died here and it and you just you know, a second ago, glanced off the answer. So it would be great if you could expand on that a little bit more because it solved a major mystery for me. Like you said, you would think if there's this massive die-off that affects 75% of life on Earth, that we would have these sort of bone deposits for the two reasons why not. And one is more practical and one is like a big picture answer about how the fossil record works. One of which was there's a lot of sulfur, basically rich compounds in the target rock, the rock that that asteroid hit and pulverized and sent up into the air, a lot of sulfates. And that's really good, not only at reflecting sunlight and cooling things down is what led to the impact winter for about three years after impact, but also when those basically compounds come back down in the form of rain and create acid rain. And it's not enough to like, you know, singe anybody's skin or anything like that. But over time, if there's anything that's exposed and keep in mind that these are bones that have already been through a lot. They're from organisms that died during this heat pulse. There are global forest fires, not as in consuming the whole plant, but just all over the place. You already mm -hmm. have these damaged bones that are being affected by acid rain, basically eroded away. The other aspect is just the way the fossil record is in that, you know, we've known this since the 19th century that if you think of it as a book, you're really, it's not a complete book. It's a book where you only have a certain percentage of the pages. And on those pages, you only have a certain number of paragraphs and sentences and words. So you're looking at all these little tidbits, trying to piece together this bigger story because it's only a small fraction of what existed that came preserved. And this has something to do with a really technical concept. But if you want to look up, it's called the Signor Lips effect. So basically, if you imagine like, you know, just look at a wall in your office or your home. If you took a handful of little plastic dinosaurs and you threw it against that wall, they're not all going to line up right against that boundary. If you treat that as like an extinction boundary, they're gonna pop up in different places. And the fossil record is very much like that. And that, you know, organisms sometimes survive, but we don't have their fossil record. Or sometimes they go extinct earlier, but we don't know exactly when that is. It's very similar with this boundary where it's like that boundary, it's like drawing a line across the fossil record. But what's going to show up, like there may or may not have been great preservation potential for that to actually make it in later. We have a mm. few sites, a lot's been made about this site, Taniston, uh, North Dakota. Um, what's gonna come out of that? We'll have to wait for a lot of the papers, but uh, they have really great fish. I can say that much. <laughs> we, know, we, know, we know that so far, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately we're probably not gonna find like sort of, you know, like those old animations of like the secret elephant graveyard. There's not gonna be equivalent mm. of that for the non-avian dinosaurs. The fossil record is a pretty harsh thing. It's, it's pretty rare and unique to become a fossil. Your description of the impact shows the struggle that we have in talking about truly planetary scale events. You talk about explosion equivalent to 100 teratons of dynamite, you know, 420 zettajoules worth of, of energy. Can you, can you talk a bit about the, the scope and scale of that impact and why it was you know, truly a, you know, kind of a planetary extinction event. 
the way that I thought about it, it's like these are children's numbers. These are numbers that are so big that you might as well like ask your average, you know, dinosaur loving seven year old. And they're gonna say it's like a million zillion. Yeah, it's like they yeah, sound like yeah. bajillions. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's it's in- incomprehensible, really, how big this was. And it makes sense when you think about it that you're dealing with a seven mile wide chunk of rock. It's been around basically since the formation of our solar system. It just didn't get taken up into anything. And you know, that this is being basically shot by gravity, you know, towards our planet at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. And our planet is moving at tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles an hour and also orbiting and turning. And, you know, as we know from anytime two moving objects hit each other, all that energy behind their movement, you know, sort of combines and creates something even greater. And this was a matter of, you know, the asteroid also struck at a low angle and it struck just the worst kind of rocks. This really was like the worst case possible scenario that there was because there have been other impacts through time. We actually have larger impact craters from even the past 66 million years. One in Siberia called the Papagai Crater that's even bigger than the Chicxulub Crater and the Yucatan tied to the Cretaceous extinction. Only the Papagai Crater, it's not tied to a mass extinction. So it wasn't even Mm -hmm. just like the speed and the power and the amount of energy released, but that this asteroid struck basically the remnants of ancient reefs and it struck so hard and at such an angle um, that it really had the worst possible consequences in throwing debris back out into the atmosphere. And then the chemical components of that limestone affecting the global climate to the point where there are massive volcanic eruptions happening at the same time, so much so that we thought that they might've been an extinction trigger. Turns out Mm -hmm. that those volcanic eruptions actually saved some of life on Earth. They basically created so much global warming that counteracted some of the impact winter. So this is a kind of like, global processes that we're talking about that you have to kind of zoom out a little bit and that was a challenge to write about because so much of this is organic so much of it is on the ground but i tr- knew i had to not villainize the asteroid but at least take a moment to say okay like how did it get here what was it doing it wasn't like it was just like hanging out near our orbit and then just dropped in that basically it was on the way for the entire rise and evolution of the dinosaurs so basically like the one with their name on it was approaching during their entire heyday and just that that blew my mind when we zoom down into the into the details of individual chapters there's some things that really jump out there is a lot about eating in this book Uh, not not you know of the uh, of kind of the version that I'm used to from the books that I was reading uh, you know as a kid into dinosaurs of animals tearing each other's throats apart but passages about chewing and teeth plants nutrition energy budgets different animals rates of burning energy uh even you know, poop comes up so why is it so important to make sure that the reader could see the world through that lens of what animals can eat what they can find some of that's personal in terms of like that's what i think about when i go out for a hike or i see organisms like like, how do you live here how are you interacting with the ecosystem around you and i feel like that's very important when we talk about dinosaurs because so often when we think about dinosaurs they're almost singular it's almost like action figures where you know we want to know everything Mm -hmm. about that dinosaur but then how does it interact with its environment? So if we think of something like an apatosaurus, you know, one of these long-necked dinosaurs, um, 
how much plant material does it have to eat in a particular day? Are some plants more nutritious than others? When you're, you know, 60 feet long and weigh upwards of 30 tons, that's a lot of animal to feed. And if we can understand some of that, we can understand some of their evolution. For example, that these dinosaurs, they didn't chew. They basically just horfed everything down and let it process inside themselves because they had to do that to get enough nutrition. It was this weird little trade-off where if you're spending a lot of time chewing, then you're actually getting less than if you were just sucking down all the ferns and horse tails you could possibly find. So I initially went to college as an ecologist, and I often bring that view to my writing that I don't want to just kind of do the biography of the animal mm-hmm. itself, but pull out some of these threads and connections that really let us understand how much the world changes. One of the most important ones to me was once the non-avian dinosaurs disappear in the book and you have all these forests coming back, that the forests can grow a lot denser. They can grow a lot cl- more closely together because there aren't big herbivores pushing over trees and pushing, you know, basically stomping down pathways through the forest and knocking stuff over. So it created this crucible for mammals that never existed before. You used to have these very open spaces where dinosaurs could roam. All of a sudden you kind of have a forest that basically grows shoulder to shoulder. And that creates a very different kind of environment. So I felt like it would have been too jarring to kind of focus too much on sort of here's T-Rex and it's doing its mighty thing. Here's Triceratops and now it's gone. But to really like talk about how fundamentally, you know, their processes, like what they did and all those little ecosystem interactions, like you mentioned dung. Like what did the dung beetles do when non-avian dinosaurs were not supplying them with food anymore? How did they make the jump? So I really love those those smaller stories, being able to connect some of those threads. And it was the it was the first book in paleontology that I that I'd really seen like kind of food webs, you know, the things that you'd find in, in kind of a more classical ecological study show up and which becomes especially relevant when you look at the collapse of those webs you know the you know the loss of so many different species all at once and then watching those get pieced back together by the animals that remain absolutely that's this idea of contingency right is that evolution there aren't infinite possibilities at any given moment. There's certain pathways that open and close. And if we're talking about on the ecological scale, it's often determined by who survives and what they do and, and what kind of physiology they have. It's kind of mind blowing that you know, we often think of dinosaurs as so superior. You know, We think of them as being you know, very active and dynamic and hot blooded and stuff, which is all accurate, which is all great. But so many of the survivors were ectotherms. They're cold-blooded animals because when you're cold-blooded, you can get by on less. And mm-hmm. that says something about why we like didn't get a second age of reptiles and why mammals were able to take off. Whereas previously, you know, 200 or so million years before that point, it was proto-mammals that were running the show and it was reptiles who were in the backseat. So some of these big shifts, they really have to be told, I guess, in the, the context of these, okay, what's our starting condition? If we more or less like mm-hmm. cleared the field and we're left with a small group, 25% of what once existed, and that's still there and that's still hanging on. How is that going to change the shape of life on Earth? And that comes with that idea of like if the asteroid, not even missed, but if it had hit in a different place, if it had hit at a different speed or angle or any number of things have been slightly different, the extinction might have either been canceled or dramatically altered non-avian dinosaurs would still be running around. So it was really like this critical, it wasn't inevitable, really. It was a matter of you have diversity creating more biodiversity. And then when you cut so much of that back, you get to restart that process and see it run again. You could almost classify this 
as a book of speculative fiction. Uh, if like a book of speculative mm-hmm. fiction that kept all of its receipts yes, uh, <laughs> to, to back it up. I, but in, in many ways, I was wondering about you know, the relationship between you writing this and, you know, paleo art, like mm-hmm. that, that process of trying to figure out what a dinosaur looked like based mm-hmm. on what's come through on this, on the fossil record. Was that, that engagement with previous depictions or previous sources, the images that you'd seen before, or the ones that you see when you when you look at a fossil and close your eyes, is that something that animated this work? Oh, certainly. I mean, from the time I was very small, I loved seeing paleo art, and I loved seeing it change. How much depictions of these animals like were modified over time, and not just the familiar ones, but also some of the relatively obscure ones. It makes me think, for example, you know, obviously we have a new Jurassic World movie that's out now, and it's got some new dinosaurs in it, and one of them is Pyroraptor, which is a really awesome name. It is an awesome name for all of that six bones that are very, very small, and we don't really know a whole lot about this animal, and yet there it is on the silver screen, covered in feathers, bigger than a human, swimming underwater making paleontologists head desk, you know, across the land. And yet, like, I love the fact that, you know, if we're to to talk about accuracy at all, it's like, okay, obviously the Hollywood interpretation goes a little bit too far. But when we think about these animals, we have to use our imaginations, that we need some amount of speculation. And that there's certain things that we know about organisms in general that also would have applied to dinosaurs. The example that I use in sort of the appendix of the book, which is the receipts that you just mentioned, is there's this book from the 19th century called The World Before the Deluge. And in it, there's this woodcut illustration of an Archaeopteryx, this early bird flying over a Jurassic forest. And the Archaeopteryx is covered in feathers and it's meant to be a life restoration, but it has no head. It's this headless like squab kind of like flying over the forest. And that's because at the time, nobody knew what the head of Archaeopteryx looks like. It, they'd found it, they confused it for fish jaws or something on the same slab and that's kind of ridiculous because we know it was a bird we know it was a vertebrate we know it had a skull and jaws and um you know had a central nervous system and all that stuff so it's not more accurate to just leave it off you know we are always dealing with this question of like okay what do we know what's the next step we can take from that but we still have all those things all the muscles and organs and nerves and behaviors and interactions that we might not have direct a direct idea about but we know that they must have been there we know that it must have happened so we can make an informed guess as a result so you're entirely right that like in some i was really expecting people to respond to this book and call it you know speculative fiction a lot more say this isn't really science writing it's something else but i think especially in paleontology like we need it we need speculation we need imagination because otherwise then you're just gonna have reams of data about this or that flange on a particular bone and it doesn't really get us any mm-hmm. closer to understanding these animals so it's basically it's like not being afraid of being wrong saying this is like when i think about the past when i think about this dinosaur this is what i see and somebody else might have a different perspective and then we have an argument or a conversation about it and then science keeps going <laughs> in all of the different stories and episodes and vignettes that you capture in this book is there one that really resonated with you Mm. or or that you really wanted to make sure that you that you got right i think the conclusion i think the ending because it still blows my mind to this day that primates were present for this mass extinction and by that i mean that the earliest primate that we know about this little animal called purgatorius it looked like a modern day tree shrew like so a little insectivore thing with the bushy tail kind of like if you took a squirrel and you just kind of like pulled them a little bit 
that's what it looked like. And it evolved and was around the same time as Tyrannosaurus rex and Triceratops. And they survived the mass extinction. We find them in rocks millions of years after impact. And when we talk about this event, you know, the last mass extinction before the one that we're presently in, it's often in terms of like its importance to us, that if it hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here, which is, I, I think, certainly true. But even if it played out slightly differently, or if conditions hadn't been just right, our ancestors, our earliest primate ancestors, would have gone extinct and we wouldn't be here anyway. And I think that's amazing that, you know, it was really important to this idea of resilience. Because so often when we talk about dinosaurs, we talk about the extinction, we're focused on the losses, like how devastating, how catastrophic it was. What really struck me, what drove so much of the book, was this idea of how does life come back? How does it thrive? sort of in the face of adversity? How did those little straggling survivors make it through, including our own ancestors? And they felt like just connecting directly to the reader, but also just instilling that sense of hope and resilience in the end of it. Like I really wanted to get that aspect of the story, right? And create that personal connection. Say so this isn't just an academic exercise in replaying a mass extinction. This is something that like our great, 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 et cetera, aunts and uncles were, were present for and is directly relevant to why we're here. Let's roll back in your record a little bit. Tell me about starting out as a science writer. What were the, the first projects that you did that started to build into the momentum of a career in that space? Yeah. I think fascination when I was very young was part of it. You know, I, I am told that when I was young, I very quickly went through, um, they say I liked trucks for a hot minute and that was elephants, which I still very much care about. And then dinosaurs are next. So like big and loud, I guess, seem to be yes. the, the thing. And I remember going to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City around 1988. And this was before their big renovation of those fossil halls that you can still see them mm-hmm. now. Uh, back then they were dark and they're really moody and you could really get this sense of like almost like dinosaur ghosts. Like you could really sort of relate to these skeletons. And that really struck with me. And I always kept that fascination and through school and everything else, I had a knack for writing. I, you know, never finished anything, but I tried to like start writing my own novels. I would write little stories. I developed that, you know, I just found a lot of joy in writing and taking what I learned and trying to turn it into something different. And when I wanted to become a science writer, it was really because I was a frustrated student. Um, you know, at my university, I wasn't doing super well in my program. I also couldn't get out of it because I was too many credits along. But I used that wonderful university access to read all the books and papers that I was always curious about and just could never get at before. I didn't want to read sort of the, you know, um, popular press interpretation of these fossils, I wanted to read that paper and learn about it and see like, oh, this dinosaur, like we only know half of its skeleton. So who knows what the skull looks like? And that's very, very different from what I was being presented in the popular press. And writing about it helped me remember. So very quickly that went from blogging to writing for Smithsonian to coming out with my first book. And it was really all, really just pure curiosity, just pure like, how do we know what we know and how do we construct this form of knowledge? It was really learning about the process of science through paleontology. And that's really the thread of reading any of my books, even though I've done a whole bunch, that's really at the center of each of them. They might have different topic areas, but it's really about this conversation that we're always having with nature. And where was the tipping point where you knew, oh, this, I'm going to get to do this as a job. This is actually for real. 
I think it was around the time that my first book came out. So I've been blogging for Smithsonian. They had a blog called Dinosaur Tracking that I wrote for, you know, five times a week for a number of years. And I was doing that at the same time as my first book, Written in Stone, was coming out. Written in Stone was published by Bellevue Literary Press. I'm so glad that they took a chance on me. But basically nobody else wanted this book because I wasn't an authority on anything. I was just this 26-year-old student who had a passion for fossils. And I had the story to tell, and I really wanted to tell it. So Bellevue said, okay, here's a $1,000 honorarium, which is about as much as I needed to buy the laptop I required to write the book. (laughs) And basically did it for free. I was just so driven to do it and to see people in the field I admire say that they liked the book and to see it pretty much universally get positive reviews and people started paying attention. And then my following book, My Beloved Brontosaurus, I think that was the moment where I met with my editor for that book, Amanda Moon, in um, a science writing conference. And normally when you pitch a book, you need to pitch it to a whole bunch of publishers and they might say yes or no, or can you change it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she wanted whatever I was doing next. And that to me is like, okay, I think this is something that I can I can actually do and support myself and my family with. And really that was about 11 years ago and I've just been running with it ever since. And being a, a five day a week science blogger feels like the most punishing science writing schedule that exists out there. So how how was it to just shift gears from I have to have something to talk about every week too. I'm building these much bigger narratives and much bigger stories in book form. Honestly, I miss science blogs to some degree. It, it makes me sad that they've largely gone extinct. Some of mm-hmm. it was that, you know, science blogs only got big as the rest of basically the public was already moving to Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. Scientists, we tend to come to like whatever the trendy thing is kind of late. Um, but I'm glad that it existed because I felt like there was a lot of room to make things personal. What is my view or perspective on this or have a discussion? Or even just talk about like, here's the silly kind of thing. Like when I wrote dinosaur tracking, a lot of it wasn't just about like scientific studies. I wrote a lot about just neat things from the history of paleontology or there's a neat new dinosaur movie or theme park or something like that opening up and how does that compare to what we've seen before and especially in paleontology especially with dinosaurs pop culture and science they they're not only side by side they're often so intertwined in so many ways so there was always something to talk about so even though i love being able to you know write books and feature articles and kind of pick what i'm talking about i also miss that freedom partially because Right now, like a science story, let's say I see something in a scientific journal that's coming out next week, and I think it's really cool. And I'll take that to an editor and say, I think this is really neat. I'd love to write about it. Um, They might say yes, but half the time or so they say no. And it might be a really neat study. And they might just say, well, it seems incremental or it's not going to be exciting to the public or whatever the, the reasoning is. But that doesn't mean that that study or that idea isn't with merit. And I felt like with blogs, there's always room for it that you kind of had support to do it and now we've gone back to a form of science communication that honestly despite the internet it seems like it's more like it was in the 80s and 90s where it's much more journalism focused it's much more focused on articles and books and sort of what goes on in terms of social media and video and youtube and tiktok and everything else is almost like a separate universe it's much less cohesive than it was maybe 10 or 11 years ago. So yeah, I I think even though it was a difficult schedule and I think bloggers should have been paid more than they actually were, it was still great to have a kind of informal platform to make it personal. I'm glad I had that opportunity because otherwise I don't know if I would have become 
a writer. The, that avenue might not have otherwise been open to me. I described you as a, in the intro as a science writer, but you also do field work right. most summers. Mm -hmm. And and for someone who has made their living for years talking about dinosaurs, you, you still describe yourself as an amateur paleontologist. Yes. So uh, I'm wondering what, like, what distinction are you making there? And what does it mean to you to keep that amateur status? Yeah. Assuming that you're not just holding out to represent you know, the U.S. and the Paleontological mm -hmm. Olympics. <laughs> um, I think, you know, as, as time has gone on, I've come more and more towards the feeling that, you know, I can just call myself a paleontologist. I think I've published papers. I speak at museums. I've written books. I'm in the acknowledgments of papers for contributing discussions to ideas in the technical literature. It's something where I think for a long time, especially coming from, um, a non-professional background and I didn't finish my degree. I didn't, you know, go to graduate school to study with anyone in particular. That science is often very formalized and it's often very important that if you earn that doctorate or you earn that master's, that that's certainly part of your identity and, and respect should be paid as, as well as should to that. But paleontology is wonderful in that there's so many different ways to be a paleontologist. So when I would say amateur, it's mostly like I'm not paid in any sort of I don't have a professional position. I'm not a professor anywhere. I'm not a curator anywhere. Every day, I'm basically trying to figure out what do I want to say? What do I want to write about today? And I could stop tomorrow and no one would probably really notice. But as time has gone on and certainly found more confidence in myself, it's like, no, I am a paleontologist. I've made important discoveries. I have contributed to the field, I think, in, in an important way. And this is something, like you just said, like I've been involved in daily for the past 11 years of so my life, my entire professional career has been based around fossils and trying to understand them. So yeah, I, I think moving forward, I'm going to drop the amateur and just go with paleontologist. I grew up in the, in the seventies and eighties and back then a paleontologist or basically anybody working in the field was, you know, kind of a rugged looking dusty guy, you know, kind of Sam Neill and Jurassic park, uh, possibly with a, a scruffy beard like a paleontologist uh, Robert Becker. And it, and it seemed to me like a very straight white guy kind of kind of business. Yeah. I talked with uh, Steve Brissate, um on the show last year, and he expressed optimism that the field is changing. Yeah. And and so I, I wanted to check in with you. you know, do you agree? You know, does it seem like things are changing or are they changing, but at a geological pace? I think they're changing, but it is at a geological pace. I think a large problem is not even so much the diversity of people who want to be involved in paleontology, because I think the diversity is there, and especially amongst students and volunteers and early career researchers and avocational paleontologists. There are all kinds of people from all kinds of different walks of life. You know, there's racial diversity, there's able diversity, there's diversity in terms of sex and gender and everything. But the main problem that we have, and this is really systemic, it's something that has to do with like the way academia is run and who gets rewarded for what and the number of positions that are open. It's that we have this diversity and yet a lot of folks who 
are in what we consider like desirable, I don't want to say top tier, but people who are like curators and professors and the sorts of people that you're likely to see on television. Um, most of the time, it is the same kind of person. And that's not to say that they don't do good work or anything else, but the barriers that exist, the fact that it is so much harder for people from sort of backgrounds that are different from those of someone like a Jack Horner or Bob Bakker. That's the part that we still struggle with, really. And I think there's a greater awareness that's that's coming up. And I think it's part of generational turnover. Because a lot of folks that, you know, the same people that we saw in the 80s and 90s on shows, that they're still holding down some of the same positions. They're still, you know, in these same sort of slots. And as things change, I think we're going to really see the field open up. And I think it's important. It's not just about numbers or sort of, you know, being able to see somebody like you in the field, which is very important. But, you know, we know that we're trying to understand an objective reality from our own subjective standpoints, that who we are, where we grew up, the sort of financial circumstances of where we are, all these things you might not think it matters very much to, to dinosaurs or to nature. But there's so many historical examples of misunderstanding a certain aspect of biology because the person doing that study came from a particular background or just didn't consider a different point of view things like the great alpha wolf myth that mostly came up in the wake of world war ii when researchers were looking at wolves as like generals and their soldiers and didn't really think about other social dynamics that were in play that somebody else might have been able to see so, and this is why it's important to have these perspectives. So, because when we write a paper, we're talking about science, like from where I stand, this is what I'm seeing, but somebody else with a different perspective might not see the same thing or see a different wrinkle to it. And that's all part of that process that this isn't like dictating nature to, to everybody, but it's a conversation both with nature and amongst ourselves. So I think things are changing and it's important that they are changing. I would be really excited to see, I think, what's going to come in the next 10 years or so in the field. I think the shakeup is just about ready, but we're waiting for those opportunities to open up to really let people um, just vibrantly do what they do and, and see what comes from it. As a part of that shakeup, this is your first book by a major publisher under your name, mm -hmm. Riley Black. And among the many coming out events that a queer person can go through, yes. how do you rank this one? Is this is this a big deal or is this a non-event? It's a big deal for me because it's good to see my name on a book that I felt passionate about. I had a couple of books that were work for hire. One was a children's book and one was um, like a coffee table book. Whereas more like, Riley, we know you're an expert on this. We just need you to write something about this topic. It's like, okay. I can do that. I, 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 could, I could use the $8,000 today. But this is the one that like, I believed in that was really, it's, it's something personal. And I talk about a bit in the conclusion that, you know, that my perspective as a transgender woman, like really has a lot to do with why I was attracted to the story of sort of catastrophe and then resilience. It has a lot to do with what I was going through in my own life at the time that I basically very suddenly found myself going through the middle of divorce and transitioning at the same time. And it felt like the world that I knew had pretty much vanished, much the way that at the end of the Cretaceous, everything was fine on a particular day. And the next day, life was fundamentally different. And I really related to that story. So this became a very important and personal book in that respect. It's not something that I necessarily expect to weave through all of my writing, because I think sometimes, especially for queer authors, there's always a kind of danger of, you know, always putting that gloss 
over it and we're not allowed to just like yeah that's part of who i am but like it doesn't need to be at the forefront of every single thing or like that sense like you mentioned of constantly coming out and sort of framing it in such a way but this was this was a special book to me it was it felt very personal and i feel like if readers can get to that conclusion and understand that connection with it it kind of puts the rest of the book in a very different light and they can either take that with them or they can stick with the science part but i felt like it was really essential to say like part of the reason that i know i've been fascinated with the story is learning about how you know to borrow ian malcolm's line that life uh, finds a way like that if, if something is alive <laughs> I just wanted to be clear that you brought Jeff Goldblum into this, not me. Okay, okay. I mean, good. it's it's hard not to with these <laughs> things, right? He had all the best lines. That's why. In the world of writers and researchers, names matter a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, your professional career is tied to your list of publications, your bibliography, or you know, the link on the author page. When you've decided that it's time to leave an old identity behind. You know, how do you, you know, how do you navigate that as a part of your career, as, you know, in respect of the, you know, the work that's been done before, you know, what does that process feel like for you? It felt really vulnerable and I wasn't entirely sure how to handle it. I'm not sure that I would have done anything differently, but to put this in perspective, I hadn't even started work on the last days of the dinosaurs yet when I came out. And when my marriage ended, I actually was just about to publish the previous book, Skeleton Keys, which I'd seen the cover art for, everything had been put together. And it felt very strange to have a book that was about to hit shelves, but it didn't have my name on it. But I knew that in trying to talk to interviewers or people who want to talk about the book about this, um, it didn't feel safe to do so. In fact, I, I kind of ran into that with the Wall Street Journal and that they wanted me to write a sort of promotional article tied to the tied to the book, which I did. And I said, like, could we do this under Riley Black? That's, that's my real name. I'm transitioning. That's what I'd like to do. And their response is like, well, we don't want to do that because that's going to confuse the readers because they just had a new book out with a different name on it. My wish would have been to go and you know basically disappear for maybe about you know two or three years and do something else and kind of reintroduce myself at some other point but that also would have been cutting myself off from the various things I had done and contributed to so I really felt like mm -hmm. since I was already like a very minor public figure but a public figure nonetheless there wasn't really any choice other than basically to do it live to, to do it you know out in the open and sort of take control of the narrative and the story myself and not turn it into a sort of vulnerable moment where someone might later say, aha, I figured it out and all those sorts of things to just be open about the experience. And that really saw me through the whole thing. I think once I made that decision, it took a lot of that fear and uncertainty away. And now it's like, I don't reference my older book as much as I used to. I'd love to go back and rewrite some of them. Some of them, like my beloved Brontosaurus can certainly use an update. And I think it would be certainly fun to, to do that. And I have some readers who are like, is it possible I can get your old books under your real name? It's like, unfortunately, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. But yeah, it's, it's kind of each book that I've written represents a different time in my life and a different time in my career. Skeleton Keys, oddly enough, all about our human skeletons, was kind of closing the book on what life 
used to be. And Last Days of the Dinosaurs is sort of a tribute to that, but also the likes that's coming after. So even though I didn't write it for this reason, I think it would be really easy to look at my body of work and see that shift. And I've noticed people have mentioned as well that the new book seems much more joyful. It seems much more passionate, whereas some of my previous works seem to have a sense of like sadness or difficulty with them, which that's what dysphoria does to your brain. <laughs> it makes it very difficult to do some things. So I'm really looking forward to what comes after this. And I'm thinking about writing about fossil plants next to the book on paleobotany. And I think that really fits in with that that theme of, of growth and sort of how vibrant life can be. So you'll get your own version of the, the KPG boundary between those two books that you can, you can look back on and, uh, and see where everything changed. Yeah. I should maybe organize them like that on my bookshelf. Just have a little like slice of clay or something like that. There's, to separate. there's an irradiated gap. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I wanted to come back to to something that we touched on earlier, which was you mentioned that there are some discoveries that have really only happened in the last five years that that illuminated different parts of this book. And I was wondering if you could touch on a couple of those. Like, what are things that really are fresh science that have made it onto these pages for the first time? The most recognizable one, mostly because it's been mostly the most out in the press, really, uh, is the Tana site in the Dakotas. There's a lot of controversy about the site and the particular paleontologist who's running that dig. But the initial paper, which is basically a geology paper about, OK, we have the impact that occurs in the ancient Yucatan. How quickly did sort of seismic activity earthquakes reach the ancient Hell Creek ecosystem? And what effects did those have causing, you know, sort of this idea of a seish wave? So if you have this basin that's filled with water, that's almost like a bathtub during an earthquake. It kind of sloshes back and forth and then spills out over the landscape and created this fossil site. And I felt as controversial as that site can be, that that paper had enough solid science behind it to really bring that into the story. And that's something that really only showed up about two years ago in the popular press. There's been another paper since about the, the fish and that this impact likely occurred in the springtime based upon sort of what the growth rates of those fish were doing versus having like the um, impact spherules, the glass in their gills. So we're still learning a lot about this particular area. But the other one that I was really most excited about, and I think deserves a lot more attention, is Corral Bluffs in Colorado. And that documents 100,000 years and a million years after impact. And you can see mammals becoming larger, but in a particular way, like a recent study found that like their body size got bigger, but their brains didn't. So you have something that, you know, their lineage went from being the size of a house cat to being the size of a German shepherd, but having the same size brain. And what does that mean for their behavior and how they're interacting with their environment? And that body size kind of came first in this habitat, in an environment where we get things like the first legumes, the first like ancestors of beans, these like protein rich plants that probably underwrote the evolution of these mammals. And even analyses, there are always fossil analyses going on that are wonderful. It's not always something that you just find in the rock, right? And that you bring back to a museum and you go, aha, we've learned something new. But analyzing like things like sediment cores or modeling ancient climates. So things like there was a paper in uh, PNAS, so the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, 
that looked at the Deccan traps, these eruptions that were thought to be an extinction trigger in the past. And it turns out they actually warmed the climate during a time where it might have otherwise been very cold and made the extinction less severe than it would have been. So a lot of this showed up right on time. It's kind of terrifying as a writer because you're wondering, okay, there's a nine month period between when I'm gonna finish this and when it appears. I hope that there's nothing that's gonna contradict the critical parts of my story. Um, you have to kind of predict in a sense, like what are the safe safe bets and where are you going further out on a limb? But I'm, it's a really exciting time for paleontology. And what I would really love to see is if we can find some more of these fossil sites around the world, what makes you know, Montana and the Dakota so interesting for this time period is you have rocks through the end of the Cretaceous and the first parts of the following time period, the Paleocene is the before and after snapshots of this disaster. Those are very hard to find around the rest of the planet, but they are there. There've been a few reports of them so far. And that's what's going to be really interesting, seeing how, you know, a place in Europe or Australia or Asia really compares to what's going on in ancient North America. And if this extinction, you know, more or less played out the same just about everywhere, or if it was quite different in different places. So this book, I feel like is the most accurate for what I can do right now, but who knows, you know, if I'm lucky enough to see, you know, 20, 30, whatever years from now, I might be saying like, oh yeah, I had no idea what I was talking about. We know very much differently now. <laughs> no, 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 that's called second edition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that is. <laughs> I can't help looking at the the parallels between this great extinction that you document at the at the border of the the Paleocene and our own self-made extinctions in the Anthropocene. Does does thinking about people as a force of extinction hang in the background for you while you write about extinctions caused by an asteroid 66 million years ago? It certainly did because I've gotten a few comments, you know, from people who've read the book who come away with maybe a little different message about um, life and how it responds to disaster. And it certainly was very much on my mind in terms of, am I being somewhat irresponsible and suggesting that life is resilient because we are certainly living in a time of increased extinction and you know, that our oceans may very well collapse if we don't do anything in, you know, on a century scale. So we're talking, you know, like great, great, grandchildren kind of time scale that they're going to be affected by what we're doing now. And I didn't want to have too rosy of a view. It was kind of difficult to balance between life is incredibly or can be incredibly fragile, but it's also wonderfully resilient. The fact that, you know, life appeared on earth originated over three and a half billion years ago, and it's never entirely been wiped out. And that's an amazing thing. But 99% of all species have gone extinct and species are going extinct even now as we speak. So it was a matter of, I wanted to give people hope in, a, in the sense that, you know, life can respond to these changes, life can adapt and thrive again, but maybe trying to work in there a little bit, like if we can, we should avoid pushing it to the brink that, you know, I really wanted to drive home, that's an ecological view, really that this isn't just about the loss of individual species is the way like i feel like it was presented to me like often through elementary school was sort of we talk about these lists like these are all the different animals that have gone extinct but we didn't talk about sort of the ghosts they leave behind 
in their habitats in terms of, you know, the plants that now don't get eaten, don't get their seeds dispersed, or a kind of prey species that now becomes super abundant because the predator is no longer there. So it was kind of trying to weave that into that ecological view, that sort of thing that there's no one correct side to it, but looking at it in terms of connections, like that we are severing all these sorts of connections and new ones can spring up, but we should be careful about what it is that, that we're doing. Last question for me. A Twitter told me that you dusted off a novel draft. Yes. <laughs> that might get some more work put into it this summer. Can you tell me anything about that? Yeah, it's something that I started writing, I think in 2018. I can't quite remember. It's one of those projects where you have the initial idea and you jot it down. You're super excited about it. It's like, and I don't know what to do with it. Um, but I really grew up, you know, it was the age of, you know, prior to Jurassic Park. The dinosaur movies and media that existed were things like, you know, super old reruns or adaptations of, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World uh, on TV and in film, or um, a lot of Ray Harryhausen kind of stop motion dinosaur movies or things like One Million Years BC or When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. And I really love those lost world kinds of stories. And I really love like with things like King Kong, like Skull Island, this idea that there's this island somewhere that has organisms like left over from the Mesozoic. But like as in the Peter Jackson adaptation, maybe they've been evolving since then. Maybe, maybe they're different. So the novel idea is really um, the Bone War is set on a place like Skull Island based on this competition between paleontologists to discover and describe and really delve into this little pocket of animals that were thought to be extinct uh, in a place where they've been evolving for the 66 million years hence. So there won't be familiar dinosaurs in it like a T-Rex or a Triceratops, but there'll be mm -hmm. descendant animals. One of the ones I'm really proud of is uh, a ceratosaur relative. So one of these predatory dinosaurs that had bones or osteoderms in their body and imagining, well, what if it were a quadruped? Because we don't have a quadrupedal carnivorous dinosaurs and what if those osteoderms got big enough to look like boulders and kind of act as camouflage and you have this ambush predator that's doing something very different so that's the the general idea is you know it's based on our protagonist is based on a real life paleontologist named uh, annie montague alexander who was really important in the founding of the uh, paleontology programming museum at university of california berkeley so it's like what if she were to visit a place like skull island in the late 19th century populated by all these prehistoric leftovers and the sort of paleo pulpit adventure that, that comes from that so it's kind of my tribute to the media that really inspired me when i was little cannot wait riley thank you so much for joining us oh this has been wonderful thank you so so much i have been speaking with science writer riley black author of the new book the last days of the dinosaurs an asteroid extinction and the beginning of our world Find links to it and all the books we've talked about at kobo.com slash conversation. Check the show notes for a link. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.